It's good to sing songs of praises to our God. It's good to go to our God together in prayer and to worship Him with our hearts, with trust, knowing that He hears our prayers and that He is uh, eager to hear our prayers and eager to answer our prayers. And He's eager to help us by His Spirit to understand His Word as well. So we turn our hearts to God's Word together this morning. Turn with me in your copy of God's Word, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 17 to 19 this morning. But I want to begin at verse 13 to set the context for that. So I'd ask you if you would to stand with me out of respect for God's word as we read from verses 13 to 19 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. Amen. This is God's word for us. Please be seated. I want to say what a a joy it is, week by week, as we see different individuals and we're able to gather together and worship uh, our God together. It's fun to see even people that haven't been able to be with us in the past back with us again this morning. Had a chance to greet a few of you, and I just want you to know how special it is to see you and to have you with us. And we just look forward to the day when our God will allow us all to worship Him together and give praise to Him together in a a way that I think will be incredibly sweet. In the meantime, He has been so good to sustain the ministry of this church and uh, the unity of this church. Well, we're looking this morning at this topic in God's Word, it's, uh, it's another response that we as the people of God are to make to the grace of God that we've received in Christ. It's this issue that we're going to talk about this morning of godly fear. I remember hearing the story of a little girl. This little girl was the daughter of a pastor, and she was misbehaving at church. Two elders were interviewing a person that wanted to become a member of the church, and they were having a conversation with that uh, person, and this little girl came into the room and began to run around and look at all the various objects and just kind of make herself interested in whatever she wanted to. And when one of the elders asked her to leave, this little girl looked up at him sweetly and said, it's okay, my daddy is the pastor. You see, she had already at a young age somehow gotten it into her head that the fact that her father was the pastor entitled her to do what she wanted to do at church. She was used to doing what she wanted to do. Her little mind may not have realized it, but she was really using her position as the daughter of the pastor uh, as a get-out-of-jail-free card. And as I thought about it, that's exactly what we are often tempted to do with God. We can treat God the exact same way. Sometimes we can think of our relationship with God is a get-out-of-jail-free card, and it happens like this. A temptation to sin comes along, and we begin to think about that particular temptation to sin, and we reason this way. You know, I've, I've sinned in the past, and my Heavenly Father, He's forgiven me, and you know what? I know He'll forgive me again, and after all, it's just a little sin, and it's not such a big deal, and, and after all, God is my Father, and, and He'll forgive me because that's what He does. 
So you see, we use our relationship with God as uh, an excuse to do what we want to do, an excuse to sin, but the Bible never indicates that it's okay for us to use our relationship with God in that way. It's never okay to use our relationship with God as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Instead, as you study God's Word, you see that the Bible makes our relationship with God uh, a foundation, a a strong motivation uh, to pursue holiness, to pursue godliness, to flee from sin. So the fact that God is our Father should never lead us to play with sin. Said as we're going to see in our passage together this morning, the fact that God is our Father, that He's holy, should lead us to live a life that's characterized by a godly fear. And that's what we're going to talk about as we look at this passage this morning. So we're continuing our study in 1 Peter. For the past few weeks, we have been looking at the way that Peter encourages these believers that he's writing to to respond to the grace of God. So as you begin 1 Peter, you look from verses 3 to verse 12 of chapter 1, you see Peter just kind of unloads the glorious grace of God that he's poured out on us in Christ. All the privileges that we have received by grace and by grace alone, he unpacks for us the the living hope that Ron just prayed about a few minutes ago, Uh, the inexpressible joy that we can know as Christians. You You won't always know inexpressible joy as you go through the Christian life because this is a fallen world after all, and this is war, but you will know moments of inexpressible joy that come to you as you meditate on the relationship you have with God through Christ, a relationship that is secure and can never be taken from you no matter what you may be experiencing. He talks about the rich spiritual privileges that we've received in Christ and then from verse 13, as we said, from verse 13 on, all the way to the end of the, of the book, he's going to just unpack how should we respond? How should we think about what we've received? How should we live in light of what we've received? How should we respond? So he's giving us really characteristics of what a Christian is. In verse 13, we saw that believers should be characterized by hope of eternal life, which is to say that, friend, if all of your hopes are tied to this world, and you're just trying to get ahead in this world, and this world's all you care about, you may lack the kind of hope that God gives Christians. It's a living hope of eternal life in Jesus where we'll be with him forever and ever. We saw the believer should be characterized by holiness. So God is the holy God. And because he's our father, we should, we should bear the family image. We should pursue that same kind of holiness. So friend, if your life lacks holiness, you may not have received the salvation that God gives to believers, to those who follow him. And this morning, we're going to see kind of a third thing that should characterize believers as we look at these verses from 17 to 19. Peter's talked with us already on several occasions about the glory it is that God is our Father, but now Peter kind of brings in this other, other aspect of who God is in our lives, and he tells us that God is also the judge. He's also the one who is assessing our lives. He's the one who's going to judge the way that we live our lives. It's really an amazing reality to think about. And it's a reality that teaches us that we must never make the grace of God an excuse for sin, but instead we should walk before God with with what we're going to call a godly fear. And we're going to talk about what that godly fear is. So we're going to study this passage this morning using two points. If you're taking notes, if you receive the the, uh, the, the little handout as you came in, you'll have those written out for you. But two points from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 to 19. First, we're going to see the command to live lives that are characterized by godly fear. We'll see that kind of in the second part of verse 17. And then we're going to see two motivations 
to live lives that are characterized by godly fear. We'll see that in the first part of verse 17 and also as we look at verses 18 and 19. Let's look at that first point then. The command to live lives that are characterized by godly fear. Look at verse 17. We'll read the whole verse, but particularly we're going to focus our, our minds or hearts at first on the second part there. He says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. The second part of verse 17, it's, it's the only command that you find in these verses. It's really the heart of what Peter wants us to focus our hearts on. It's what he wants us to understand. It's yet another response that we are to make to the grace of God that we've received in Christ. We're to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile. What does conduct yourself mean? Well, it comes from a Greek word that really is just talking about the way you live your life. This is the overall lifestyle that you live. This is the day-by-day conduct that you're to have as a follower of Jesus. And notice that he says it's to be characterized by fear. But of course, he isn't saying that believers should go through their life worried and anxious because of the circumstances that they're facing. He certainly isn't saying that believers are to be marked by cowardice. No, Peter's talking about a particular kind of fear here. He's talking about what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord or the fear of God. Many evangelicals in our day are unfamiliar with this. Many pastors do not preach about this. But God's word is filled with this. From beginning to end, you see there's this aspect of our life as followers of Jesus where we're to be marked by this, by this godly fear. In other words, it is good and right for Christians to be characterized by a godly fear. Listen to what the Bible says. Psalm 128, verse 1. Blessed, happy is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 to 13, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So you hear over and over in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see this refrain, you see this theme of God encouraging us to live our lives with a godly fear. But what is that? What does it mean? What does it mean for us to live lives that are characterized by godly fear? What is this fear of the Lord that the psalmist talks about, that Paul talks about, that Peter's talking about in our passage? Well, again, it doesn't speak of kind of a servile, craven fear. It's not the kind of fear that a criminal would have if he were standing before an angry judge, though we will talk about the fact that God is a judge as we look at this passage. Instead, believers should have a relationship with God that's marked by a love, by a deep respect, even by an awe of who God is. In other words, to fear the Lord means to take him seriously. It's to take God seriously. It's to have a God consciousness that puts God kind of at the center of your focus as you live your life. You kind of see everything through this lens of the fact that God is 
God is real, and God is not only real, God is involved, God is present, God is active, God is with me, and that impacts the way we live, it impacts the way we think, it impacts the decisions that we make as we go through our day. It's this God consciousness that, it's this reverence of heart that should cause us to delight in bringing a smile to our Father's face, right? And should make us afraid to do anything that would bring a frown to his face to displease him. In a sense, it's the fear of God that separates believers from non-believers, Christians from non-Christians. In other words, as Christians, we realize that there is a God with whom we have to do. It's not just this intellectual notion that there is a God out there, but you know what difference does that make in my life today anyways? It's a realization that there is God out there, but he's not just out there. He is my God, and he's present, and that, again, should impact everything that I do as one who follows this God. It should affect us the way we think because we love him. And while we continue to sin, tragically we do, while we continue to sin, we hate it. And we don't just hate it because of the bad consequences. We hate it because of what it, what it says about our relationship with God. We hate it because it grieves our heavenly Father and we want to change and we want him to change us. We want all of our lives to be lived to God's glory. But in contrast, Non-Christians live with very little thought of God as they go through their day. If they do believe in a God, it's a God that they very easily kind of reshape into their own image. It's a God that kind of thinks the way that they think. It's a God who approves of, uh, or, yeah, who approves of the things that they do, and they'll say things like, my God would never do this, and my God would never say that. And that's true. Their God would never do that. The question is, who's the real God? But for the most part, God doesn't have much to do with them throughout the day. They're just worried about the next thing, the next activity, the next pursuit, the next way to make themselves happy. And for the most part, they're, they're pretty happy to not think about God until they get into a jam. And then you cry out on God, right? You cry out to God as soon as you get into a problem. They're very happy to live without God until they find themselves in a foxhole. But Paul describes non-believers succinctly this way. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. There's no fear of God before their eyes. They don't live with this constraining understanding of who God is. But a godly man, a godly woman, will always have the thought of God before them Again, they're afraid to do anything that's displeasing to him. Why? Because they long so much to bring a smile to his face. I like what J.C. Ryle said about this. He said, a holy man will follow after the fear of God. I do not mean the fear of a slave who only works because he's afraid of punishment and would be idle if he did not dread discovery. I mean rather the fear of a child who wishes to live and move as if he was always before his father's face because he loves him. You see, the fear of God is really one aspect of what it means to love God. It's a desire to turn away from anything that would displease God because we love God with all of our hearts. So, for instance, a person who fears God will walk in obedience to God at all times, not just when other people are watching. So the, the finances will be done well with integrity, including paying all taxes. This person will forsake all sexual sin, even forms of sin that can be hidden at least for a while. Turn away from all of that. He'll work hard. She'll work hard at the office at all times, and not only when the boss is watching. Why? Because he or she is living their lives with this constraining fear of God, this reminder that my God, my Father, the one who loves me, is with me, and I want to please him in how I live today 
and I don't want to do anything that would displease him. Now, notice in verse 17 how long we are supposed to do this. How long is this fear of God supposed to characterize our lives? Peter says, throughout the time of your exile. The word exile there comes from a word that really means sojourn. It's used in Acts chapter 13, verse 17, to speak of the time that the people of Israel, they, they spent in Egypt before Moses came and brought deliverance. Really, it speaks of living as a foreign people in a, in a nation that's not your own. Of course, Missy and I have shared this, but when we lived in Turkey for two years, we felt something of that. I mean, the, the people around us, they looked different from us. The language was different. The culture was different. All the just the little ways that they lived their lives in so many ways were was foreign to us. We didn't really fit in. And for two years, we kind of felt what it was like to not fit in. But you see, for the Christian, this exile, this sojourn isn't just for a few years. It's not just for the beginning of your Christian life when you feel particularly zealous to follow God. Actually, no, we're supposed to be pursuing the fear of God all throughout our life, which is to say all throughout our exile. Why? Because we do not belong here. As we said last week, this world is not our home. And so if we don't feel like we belong here, it's because we don't. We're sojourning here for a time, a few more months perhaps, A few more years, perhaps, a few more decades, perhaps, but one day we will cross the river and we will, we will finally be home. And we long for that day. We look forward to that day. But as long as we live in this world, God desires that our lives would be characterized by this this godly fear that constrains the way we live, a fear that makes us afraid again of bringing a frown to his face because we desire to make him smile. may do that good work in us may do that good work in us even in this coming week. So that's what you see there. Second part of verse 17, there's this command to live lives that are characterized by godly fear. But then there's a second point we want to see this morning. We want to see two motivations. Peter does more than just give us a command. He actually gives us motivations here for why we should live this way. And we see two motivations in this passage. So two motivations to live lives that are characterized by godly fear. Here, Paul, he's speaking to us again, and now he's going to speak to our hearts, and he's going to motivate us to live in this way. And then in this passage, he gives us these two motivations. First, our Heavenly Father will judge us according to our deeds. Our Heavenly Father will judge us according to our deeds. We're going to see that in the first part of verse 17. And then second, we have been ransomed from futile ways of living at a great cost. We have been ransomed from futile ways of living at a great cost. And we'll see that as we look at verses 18 and 19. Let's look at those one at a time. Here's his first motivation. Our Heavenly Father will judge us according to our deeds. That's what he says in the first part of verse 17. So look at verse 17 again. He says, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So why should we be motivated to live in the fear of God? Because God, who is our Father, He's also the holy judge, and he's assessing our lives. And he will judge us for the way that we have lived our lives. Notice that he will judge us impartially. He'll judge us perfectly. Now, many professing Christians are taken aback by this. If you talk with them about the love of God, they're right there with you. If you tell them that God is their father, that God provides for their needs, they're right there with you, they're tracking with you. But if you say that God is also a holy judge that will assess the way you live, indeed will judge the way you've lived your lives, they just kind of shake their heads at you and kind of, they kind of resist that. Why? Because it doesn't seem right to them. They don't feel comfortable with that thought. And yet this is exactly what Peter says. 
Now, these folks may say, but, but God is a God of love, and that's certainly true. It is certainly true that God is a God of love. And they'll say, and didn't Jesus die for all of our sins so that we would be forgiven? And to that we say, amen, he did. He died for all of our sins so that we'd be forgiven for all of our sins. Praise God for that. And so they say, well, how then can God judge us for our sins? It's a really good question. So what can we say to that? How can we understand this tension that you see in the Bible between a God who has forgiven us for all in Christ and yet the Bible so clearly says that God is also a God who judges, who assesses the lives of his children? Well, first, we need to be very clear that the Bible repeatedly teaches that in some sense, in some sense, God is going to judge believers for the way they live their lives. And friends, the most important thing when we try to understand some of the deeper things of the faith is not, how does it make me feel? It's, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Well, think about what the Bible says. Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 to 37. Here's Jesus speaking to his <laughs> disciples. He says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. There, there are a few things more scary to me than than that reality. I can't tell you how many careless things I've said that I wish the moment after, I wish I could have taken back. He says, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. He's speaking to his disciples there. Of course, it includes more than just his disciples. He's talking about everyone. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15, he, Paul says this, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, Paul says, So whether, you are, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. All of these texts remind us that in some sense, God is going to assess, God is going to judge the life of believers, indeed the life of his children. But then secondly, and this is so incredibly important to understand, we need to be clear on this, that because Jesus paid for all the sins of believers, all of them, because those who follow Jesus have been forgiven for all of their transgressions, because they've been justified, declared perfectly righteous in Christ, God's judgment for believers is not one of punishment. It is one of reward. And we just read about that, didn't we? We see that most especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. We just read it a moment ago, but listen again. Here Paul, he's speaking to believers about the kind of life they should live as they build their life on the foundation of the gospel. This is so particularly pertinent for pastors and those in ministry, but it's true for all Christians. He says, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. 
So on the day of judgment, our lives will be assessed. It will be as though through fire. And those things that we have done that were dishonoring to God, that were sinful, that were displeasing to Him, it speaks of it as just burning up, of being worthless. But those things which by God's grace we did for Him, by God's grace, those things that better said He did through us, in matchless grace, He will reward us for those things, and we will have a an eternal reward. And you say, well, what's that, Peter? I say it's a longer sermon, but I think it involves an increased capability to serve him in heaven. And I think it involves an increased capacity to enjoy him for all eternity. I think it's a really good thing. I think it's something that we should pursue. Third, in a sense, and this is important as well, the judgment of God is already occurring in the life of believers. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7 to 12. Well, let me just say that. Hebrews 12, verse 7 to 12. Write that down and read it later. Here, here the author of Hebrews tells us that God is a, a good father, and as a good father, he instructs us, yes, but he also disciplines. Word used in Hebrews chapter 12 is discipline. It's a, a word that speaks of instruction, of education. The King James calls it chastening. And what he's saying is that when his children pursue sin, as a good father, he will go after them and pull them back. And sometimes that involves, sometimes that involves some painful realities. Uh, sometimes it involves just, you know, your conscience is torn, right? You have a strained conscience because of your sin. But sometimes God's discipline can be severe as well. If you pursue sin, particularly hidden sin, the day may come when God, as it were, just kind of blows the roof off the house and exposes your sin to everyone so they're able to see what has taken root in your heart. And in that moment, you're not being punished. You're being chastened. You're being instructed. You're being disciplined. And God is, God is exposing that sin in your life that's taken root. Why? So that you can see it for what it is and so that you can turn away from it and so that you can find healing in Christ. So if that happens to you, brother, sister, don't be angry. Be grateful. It's a painful thing, but be grateful and know that God has good purposes in that discipline. Now, in 1 Peter, again, verse 17, the first part, when we see Peter say, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, we need to keep all of that in mind. In other words, we need to remember that it's a serious thing. It's a serious thing to have God judge us, to judge our lives. He's our Father, we love Him, we want to please Him, but He is also the Holy Judge that is assessing us impartially. And so it makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense that we would conduct ourselves with fear because if you belong to Jesus, you love Him. And you want your life to matter. And you don't want to stand before God someday and watch the entire work of your life be burned up by fire and be meaningless but instead you want to live in such a way that when you stand before God, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And for all eternity, he rewards you for the grace that he produces in your heart. And the Bible saying the way that we can pursue that is not by living a selfish life, a self-focused life, but instead by walking in the fear of God and letting the reality of God, his holiness, his presence, his goodness, and his love guide, shape, direct every aspect of our lives. It's walking in the fear of God. So brother, sister, think about your own life this morning. Are you conscious of the fact that you live quorum Deo, this, this phrase that means before the face of God? 
But you're never alone. So there's no such thing as a hidden sin. That your heavenly father loves you and your heavenly father knows. And because he loves you and because he knows, it should just motivate me and should motivate you to turn away from every hidden sin. I would imagine in a room this size, there are hidden sins here this morning. There are things that only you know about, or at least that's what you've been saying to yourself, only I know about this. Well, friend, it's not true. God knows about it. And this morning, the encouragement to you is to do what? It's to forsake that. It's to turn away from it. It's to bring it out into the light, as it were, to confess that, yet what God knows about this is true, and I'm turning away from this as an act of worship to him. And then, but then understand this, and here's another application. God hasn't called us to fight sin alone. That's why it's so vital that you be involved in a local church and where you be known by other people in the church who love you enough to speak into your life and who you know and trust enough that you can kind of expose yourself to, knowing they're not going to turn away from you in disgust, but they're going to move towards you in love in order to pray with you and help you. You need to be a part of a, of a healthy local church that can help you walk in holiness. None of us are strong enough. And God hasn't saved us to walk alone. He saved us to walk with other brothers and sisters who can help us. And he saved us so that we would walk close to the shepherd. Friends, the judgment of God is a solemn reality. It is a reality that should motivate us to live lives that are characterized by this godly fear. But then there's a, a second motivation there. You see it in verse 18 and 19. He says there, this motivation, that we've been ransomed from futile ways of living at great cost. That's really kind of a synopsis there. Look at verses 18 and 19, but begin again in the command at the end of verse 17. Uh, he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, there's a lot here, but at the heart of it, Peter is saying this, that we should conduct our lives with this kind of godly fear because we have been ransomed from feudal ways of living at great cost. And what is the great cost? It's the precious blood of Jesus, not a cheap thing. The most precious thing of all was given to us so that we would not walk in sin, but so that we would walk in a, a glad, joyful holiness before God, who is now our Father in Christ. The preciousness, in other words, the preciousness of Christ's sacrifice should motivate us to live lives that are characterized by this godly fear. So let's unpack what Peter's saying here. It's a lot, but let's just unpack it by making kind of two observations. First, believers have been ransomed from feudal ways of living. We have been ransomed from feudal ways of living. The word ransom there, it actually speaks of buying back someone from slavery. That's kind of at the root of it. You're buying back someone from slavery or perhaps captivity. The greatest Old Testament picture of this is when God redeemed his people out of slavery in Egypt and brought them to be his free people, serving him in the promised land. And that's a wonderful picture of what God has done for us. You do know that the Old Testament is written to give us instruction, right? It gives us instruction about what God is still doing. We are very much like the Old Testament people wandering through the wilderness on our way to the promised land. It's a picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But here's this imagery, right? God comes and redeems his people out of slavery in Egypt, and that brother or sister is what God has done for us as well. He has redeemed us, bought us back out of slavery to sin. 
so that we no longer belong to sin and Satan in this world, but now we have been set free from this slavery to sin. And a life that's characterized by love for sin and pursuit of sin is what Peter had in mind when he talked about the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. What's he doing there? He's reminding these believers of who they used to be. He's reminding them of the lifestyle that they used to live, a a lifestyle that had been handed down from from father to son, from father to son, on down, what, through the generations for centuries. And in both the Greek culture and the Jewish culture, this, this kind of fatherly wisdom, it was at the very foundation of society. It was venerated, and yet Peter speaks about it so strongly, he calls it feudal. And that word feudal, it means vain. It means empty. It means useless. So why did he call their former way of living, useless, vain, empty. Well, remember, he's talking mostly to Gentile background believers. What was their life characterized by? What was characterized by idolatry, worshiping false gods? It's characterized by sexual immorality as well. It was characterized by all kinds of vice. It was also characterized by living life for this passing world. After all, if all you have is this passing world, you're going to pursue your happiness here. It just makes sense. It's what you're going to do, and that's what they did. They lived life in this world with all that they could. It's, in other words, very much like our own present culture, very similar. There's a lot of futility to American culture. There's a picture of this in the 2008 Pixar movie, WALL-E. I don't know how many of you have seen that, but I'm still in that stage of life where you watch Pixar movies, right? And here, Earth has been destroyed by pollution, and so the, the answer was that all of humanity would get on this great spaceship and they would go off and they're waiting until all the robots clean up all the mess that mankind has made there. And life on board this great ship can be described as pathetic. What do they do? They float around on these floating chairs all day long and they're watching television screens and commercials and they're talking to one another on their cell phones. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? And every few days, this is what particularly stuck out to me, every few days a new fashion comes along. And in the movie, it's like a change of color. I don't remember if it's red to blue or blue to red. I don't remember, but everything is red. And then all of a sudden, on all the screens, there's this thing, blue is the new color. And everyone's like, ooh, blue. And they push a button on their little chair, and everything turns blue. And everyone's incredibly excited about blue. What is it? It's, It's worse than a parody. It's a commentary on our culture, where every few years something new comes along, right? Long hair is cool for a while, then it's short hair, clean shaven is cool, and then now you've got beards and tattoos become all the rage, and then there's the latest music, latest movie, latest technology. And while none of these things are wrong in and of themselves, what happens? Well, we just kind of begin to pursue the latest thing, living for the latest fad, living for the latest bit of entertainment. And so many people in our culture are trying to find their life, their purpose, their meaning in just experiencing the latest thing, running after the latest thing. And of course, it's, it's vain. Why is it vain? It's futile. Why is it futile? Because it doesn't matter how many of the latest things you get, friends, you'll never be satisfied. You'll always have to buy more. You'll always have to get more because it will never satisfy your soul because you're not made for things. You're made for God. And it's futile because there's nothing new under the sun. Do you notice that? Right? So the cool color right now is red. It used to be blue. But if you have a lot of blue things, that's okay. Why? Because eventually the cool color is going to be blue again. And round and round we go. 
And we feel like there's these new things, but then we've already learned from the Bible that there's nothing new under the sun. We just go on repeating round and round, getting nowhere. It's futile. And then it's futile in another way as well. Why? Because it's characterized by idolatry and sexual immorality and vice. And that leads to the judgment of God. It does. So the, the grand lie of our age is that it doesn't matter what you do with other people. But it does. Because God has a purpose for sex. And God has a purpose for marriage. It's teaching truth. It's something beautiful that's being twisted and the Bible is so very clear that those who walk in sexual immorality, they will face the judgment of God for that sin. It's futile to live for these passing pleasures that ultimately bring you under the wrath of God. And the Bible tells us that we must turn away from it. We must turn away from these, these futile ways of living. More hopefully, what does the Bible say? Brother or sister, it says, you have been ransomed. So Peter's talking to these first century believers. He's saying, you've been bought out of that, so you're no longer an idolater. It's not who you are. You're no longer to pursue those same sinful practices that you have received from your forefathers. And brothers and sisters, it's true of us as well. Listen, you have been set free in Christ. You have to know that. You have to know that you're not who you used to be. You have to know that you've been set free in Christ to live distinctly, to live differently, to walk in the fear of God, this God who is so much better than what we used to live for. So much sweeter, so much deeper, so much more meaningful. Why? Because we're made for him. We've been set free from the idolatry of trying to find life and owning the latest things. We've been set free from slavery to sexual immorality and other forms of idolatry. We've been set free from materialism and sensuality and kind of the pagan spirituality. Have you noticed that spirituality is just fine as long as it's pagan? You can be as religious as you want as long as there's absolutely no authoritative basis for truth and it has nothing to do with Jesus in the Bible. You can be as religious as you want, and that's fine. And we're saying, no, friends, we have been set free from futility to walk in truth to walk in the reality that God became a man and lived among us and lived a perfect life and died as a sacrifice on the cross and then rose from the dead, demonstrating once and for all the truthfulness of this book, the truthfulness of his character and his promises, and Christ himself has set forth the pattern of what we're to do. Christ, par excellence, walked in the fear of God, and we are called as those who follow Jesus to do precisely the same thing, and we've been set free to do that. And if you're a follower of him, there is no greater joy. There's another observation I want us to make. Believers have been ransomed from feudal ways of living at great cost. So we've just talked about Jesus, but now Peter really kind of unpacks it more, and he, he tells us about the preciousness of Christ here. He says, not with perishable things. You've been ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, silver and gold have always been considered precious. Actually, gold was used to buy back people from slavery. They would use gold to make that purchase. But Peter's saying we've been ransomed with something far more precious. It's the precious blood of Christ. And what is he talking about? He's talking about the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. He's talking about the worth, the infinite worth of the Son of God who became a man and allowed himself to be murdered on a cross, who spilled his blood freely so that you and I might be set free from our futility and from our sin. 
Oh, I like what it says about a lamb without blemish or spot. Again, brother, sister, read the Old Testament because all of the sacrifices that you see there, you get in Leviticus and you think, well, what's all this about? This is awfully punctilious. And then you realize every single sacrifice you read about in the Old Testament existed for one purpose. It existed to point us ahead to Jesus, who is the great and final once and for all sacrifice. And by virtue of that perfectly precious sacrifice, you and I have been set free from sin and hell and death so that we can live, so that we can truly live to glorious, precious salvation. And by his death, we've been set free. How does the fact that we've been ransomed at great cost by the blood of Christ motivate us to live lives that are characterized by godly fear? Two answers. First, when we realize that it took nothing less than the precious blood of the, of the Son of God, of Jesus Christ, to pay for our sins, it shows us what a terrible thing sin is. We have a problem, and the problem is that our sin teaches us to minimize our sin. It's the sin within us that makes us think that our sin is not such a big deal after all. You know, I'm better than that person, and I've never done that thing. And it's the sin within us that actually distorts the way we think about our sinfulness. But if you want to know the sinfulness of sin, you look at the fact that it costs the precious blood of Jesus to set you free. And when you meditate on that reality that the eternal Son of God loved you so much that he was willing to pour his blood out so that you could be forgiven for your sins, what does it do? It teaches you to, to hate your sin, to see it for what it is, so that we can turn away from our sins and we can follow this precious Savior. And that's really the second thing it does. When we realize the price that Jesus paid to set us free from the power of sin, it makes us love him more. It's why we must think about it. We must think about the reality of what Christ has done on the cross because it will help us love him more when we realize just what it is that he has done for us. And so we won't want to dishonor him by sinning. And we won't want to, we won't want to treat that sacrifice as a cheap thing by pursuing the very things that he died for, you see. Oh, it should teach us to hate our sin. Why? Because Jesus died for that sin. What motivation do you have, brother or sister, to turn away from that that hidden sin that only you know about? Well, you have the precious blood of Christ poured out so that you could be set free. You know, teach us to love Jesus. And that's what a life of godly fear looks like. It, it looks like a life that hates what God hates and loves what God loves. It, it's a life of rejecting things that dishonor God so that you can pursue things that please God. You can pursue things that that praise God. That's what this life looks like. So friend, listen, as you sit here this morning, assess your own heart. Is that what your life is characterized by? Do you see? Not perfectly. Trust me, no one here is walking in this perfectly. Uh, so if you're feeling that, that's okay. You're just like the rest of us. But is it true of you that you're pursuing these things? Have you tasted and seen some of what we've talked about? You heard that language in Psalm 34 this morning. Have you tasted and seen some of this? I trust many of you have. But if you haven't, if you realize that your life is actually characterized by just running after this world and pursuing kind of the next sin and whatever makes you happy, then, friend, we have wonderful news for you this morning. And the wonderful news for you this morning is that the blood of Jesus still saves. 
He poured out his precious blood. Why? So that sinners could be forgiven. We sang about it. I will rise and go to Jesus. I won't try to clean myself up. The invitation to you this morning, friend, is don't try to clean yourself up. Come to Jesus. The Bible speaks so strongly about who we are by nature. It says we're made by God to love him and serve him. That's our purpose. That's why we're never satisfied by the things of this world. That's why you keep having to have more and more and more things because you're made for God, but we were born sinful and separated from God. And so instead of pursuing him and loving him, we've all kind of just pursued ourselves and our own interest and how I can make myself happy. And we've rebelled against his way of living and we've pursued futile ways of living and there was no fear of God before eyes. Sin is serious. Sin brings us under the judgment of this holy God whose eyes are like a flame of fire, who sees all things perfectly. And there is no way, friend, there is no way any of us can be good enough for God. We cannot make up for the sins that we've committed against a perfectly holy God. He is the Holy One, and we are not. The message of Christianity, again, is not try harder, do better, be more religious. That's not the message. The good news of Christianity is this. Jesus has done all that's necessary to rescue you from your sins. Eternal Son of God became a man. He walked in this world, flesh and blood. He lived a perfect life of obedience to the will of his heavenly Father. He always loved and served and poured himself out for the good of others. And then at just the right moment, listen, at just the right moment in redemptive history, he lays down his life on the cross as a sacrifice. He freely pours out his precious blood on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners. He dies under the wrath of God, and then he what? He rises from the dead. And now there's hope for you this morning. If you will turn from your sin, if you will turn from pursuing kind of just a, a normal life of living for this passing world, instead turn from the ways you've rebelled against God and put your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. God is a God who saves sinners. It's the only hope that we have as we sit here this morning. It's the reason why we're gathered here this morning and not playing golf or doing something else. Why are we gathered here this morning? It's because we have received a great and precious salvation in Jesus. And friend, it's offered to you this morning. It's offered to you so that if you will trust in Christ and in Christ alone, he will receive you. And that, friend, is the very first step to living a life that's characterized by godly fear. The very first step is turn from your sin and put all your trust in Jesus. If you want to talk about that more, if you want to know more about that, I'd love to talk with you after the service. You're surrounded by people who would love to share with you what God has done for them as well. But we would press on you the preciousness of Christ, and we'd point you towards him, and we'd say cry out to him and cry out for mercy. And we started the sermon this morning thinking about a, a little girl who had used her relationship with her father as a get-out-of-jail-free card, and we said that many of us treat our relationship with God like that, at least at times, when we, when we kind of lean on it to excuse sin. But then I trust we've seen from this passage that the fact that we belong to God, that he's our father, that he is also the holy judge, should lead us to live a life that's characterized by godly fear. May he do that good work in us today, and may he do that good work in us in this coming week. And let's pray.